Welcome to Look Ahead 2017, a series of podcasts by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research discussing the events, trends and processes to watch out for in the coming year. I'm Paola Buonadonna. Today I'm joined by Roger Farmer, Distinguished Professor of Economics at UCLA, currently visiting Warwick University and newly appointed Research Director here at NISA. We want to explore what is going to happen to globalisation. Roger, the inauguration of President Trump will be the first big political story of 2017. Economically, some see the start of his presidency as signalling the high mark of globalisation. Do you agree? And if so, what went wrong? I think that's certainly correct. Uh, I think that certainly the, the world is changing from this point forward. Let's explore for a moment what you mean by the high point of globalisation. Uh, globalisation has... Uh, been incredibly effective uh, uh, bringing large uh, numbers of the world's poor out of poverty. Uh, if you look at the effect on the world income distribution, however, uh, not everybody has benefited equally. The, the bottom 50% uh, of the world income distribution are much better off than they were. Uh, the top 10% of the world income distribution are much better off than they were. But the people in the middle uh, have suffered from stagnating and, in some cases, falling real incomes. Now, to put that in perspective, those people who've benefited, and there are huge numbers of them, are what are now the rising middle class in China. The people who've benefited at the top of the world income distribution are uh, those whose incomes come mainly from the ownership of capital or from uh, skilled uh, income. So think of uh, bankers, uh, professors, uh, the elites in Western Europe and in America. Now, the people who've suffered are those around the 60th, 70th percentile of the world income distribution, uh, and those are people who were working class or middle class earners in America or Europe who would have had, say, a good paying factory job, who've now lost that job. Uh, and who have uh, faced uh, stagnating income for decades. That, I think, is a problem that needs to be solved if globalisation is to move forwards. How can we take care of this problem? What needs to be done? The economic theory of the issue ha has been clear. Uh, for, long, for a long time, economists have argued that uh, increasing trade between nations makes both nations better off, but they've widely recognized that there might be uh, losers within one or more of the countries. Uh, that issue, it's been argued, could be taken care of simply by uh, redistributing money to the losers from those who gained uh, in, in each, of the, each of the countries. Um, although that's true in theory, it's not been followed up in practice. Even if it had been followed up in practice, it's not clear to me that uh, a pure economic argument uh, is enough to understand the issues. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you were a well-paid factory worker, perhaps you were making steel uh, in Pittsburgh, or perhaps you were an auto worker in the UK, uh, and maybe you were earning $30 or £30 an hour or quite a lot of money, uh, and then you lost your job. And imagine that we still managed to find a job for you, but now you're flipping hamburgers in McDonald's. And you're earning $10 or, or, or less an hour. But 
we simply compensate you. We say, well, here's the other $20 or the other £20, and now you're just as well off as you were. Well, uh, even if we'd done that, and we didn't, even if we'd done that and we'd compensated the losers, uh, there's a, an element, I think, uh, of uh, pride in work that's missing from that argument. For many people, their identity uh, is tied up in their occupation. Uh, and the economic idea that all we care about is money uh, in many ways is simply false. So we need to find ways of not only providing money for people, but providing them with jobs that make them feel a part of society. And what complicates matters, I imagine, is the uh, rise of automation. The fact that there are objectively going to be fewer jobs, aren't there? That's a really interesting point. So, writing in the 1920s, uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, envisaged a future a hundred years from then, uh, which would put us round about now, in which uh, the, the average human being on the planet would work four hours a week uh, and then go fishing or, uh, or, or bake a cake or, or go dancing uh, or take care of leisure activities. Uh, that future clearly has not materialised. Uh, now, for, for a long, long time, uh, economists have been laughing at the idea uh, that machines would be taking away jobs from human beings. Uh, but theoretically, it's always been a possibility and it depends largely on the kinds of technologies that we invent. Let's think about robots, uh, which are now becoming more and more prevalent. Many of the new kinds of technologies, and I'm thinking about, are technologies that are direct substitutes for human labour, not complements, but substitutes. Uh, and there's a distinct possibility that as we develop more and more of those technologies, that if all you're born with is the ability to uh, work as a labourer or a, in a low-skilled activity, that you simply won't be able to find uh, enough work, enough paid work, in order to be able to provide a living for yourself or your family. Uh, that, I think, is, is a real uh, potential problem moving forward and one that we certainly need to think about. What, what do we need to do in practice, do you think? Well, we, we need to... Uh, find ways of, of sharing social worth uh, amongst all people who live in society. And that inevitably involves some form of uh, redistribution, uh, but a form that uh, is practical and I think seen as fair by every member of society. The kinds of taxes that uh, we level, levy now on income are becoming more and more problematical in a global economy because the high-earning people uh, simply find ways uh, of avoiding taxes, uh, either by moving their assets offshore or by moving offshore themselves. Um, one solution to the problem of taxation, uh, which I think is worth exploring further, is an idea that goes back to uh, Henry George, who wrote in the 19th century uh, and suggested that the only tax that we should levy would be on land. Economists have long loved Henry George taxes because they have the advantage of um, not giving incentives to people to do bad things. We call them non-distortionary. Uh, so one side of the coin is, is the taxation side. The other is to be able to somehow uh, provide a, a living wage to uh, 
the other members of society who are not born owning wealth or owning assets. Uh, one way to do that is with some form of guaranteed income, but I think that would also need to be associated with a, an idea that goes back at least to Milton Friedman, uh, which is negative income taxes. In other words, uh, if you like to, to live as a starving artist uh, uh, and uh, manage to do so, that's fine. But if you'd also lift, like to lift yourself or your family out of poverty, uh, one way to do that is to provide incentives through work in, in which, initially at least, uh, you would be subsidized for additional hours of work as opposed to taxed. So some combination um, of a taxation system which is difficult to avoid uh, and uh, which is seen as fair and a system uh, of redistribution which is not simply a handout to the poor but a system which is seen as uh, in place for every citizen. Um, some combination of, of those two things I think is what we need to try and think about uh, as we move into the, the, the next hundred years. That's in the long term of course but, but in the short term what are we likely to see? For instance, does the rise in uh, populism that we witness mean um, uh, less trade, more protectionism? Does it mean we'll be poorer? We've seen a Trump presidency in the United States. Uh, we've seen uh, the, the failure of a referendum in Italy uh, and a potential disintegration there. Uh, we're looking forward to a potential uh, Le Pen victory in France. I think any of those events could easily trigger a breakup of the Eurozone, and I would say there's maybe a one in three chance of that happening uh, in 2017. Uh, in terms of uh, international trade, uh, certainly that's going to be changing. The structure of trade will be changing. We're going to see uh, Trump renegotiating or attempting to renegotiate uh, a lot of deals, but it's worth bearing in mind that trying to reinstate the manufacturing system that existed in the 1960s and the 1970s uh, is simply not feasible in today's world. Manufacturing is declining everywhere, including in China. Uh, the best thing that we can hope for is the, the, the training or design of a workforce in Western countries uh, in which the people are better suited to the kind of manufacturing jobs that uh, may, may exist uh, as we move forward. So, most importantly, uh, we're in a very different century from the one that we've been in, uh, and we need to be looking forward to things that are going to be very different from the way they've been in the past. The world today, uh, I think, is a lot like uh, the world was in 1917 or in 1939. If you'd been sitting in 1917 uh, and asked yourself uh, what would technology, what would human relations, what would society be like a hundred years from now, I think you would have had very little clue. The same in 1939. They're both events, they're both times in history when the world changed dramatically. Now I'm not suggesting that we're, not, we're going to see another world war, uh, but I do think that the kinds of changes that we'll see socially and economically are of the same scale as the ones we saw in those two previous episodes. You're hinting there at things that can be potentially politically catastrophic, so I wonder if you believe that there is a role for economics and economists to avert catastrophe, to make things better. I'm actually tremendously optimistic. Uh, the, the time we are in history now, I think, is, is a lot like the 
uh, the, the 14th or the 15th century after the invention of movable type. Uh, if you think about what the printing press did to uh, the blossoming of human knowledge, the Renaissance and everything that came with it, uh, the internet that uh, evolved really only in the last 20 or 30 years, I think will do the same thing for human future uh, that the printing press did uh, for human history. So let me give you some examples of, uh, of a future as I see it. Uh, the simplest one to imagine right now is the technology that will come from self-driving cars. Uh, I can see those on the roads five years from now, and I can see them completely transforming our cities. Uh, imagine a future where nobody needs to own a car. You'll simply walk out the door, uh, get into a self-driving car, uh, and end up wherever you want to be. I can imagine that 10 years from now we'll be saying, my goodness, they allow human beings to drive those things on, on motorways. What a dreadful thing, how dangerous that would be. So there, there's a tremendous opportunity in the technology that we're developing. Uh, the, the challenge for all of us is to manage that technology uh, in a way that spreads its benefits equally amongst all of us. Roger Farmer, thank you very much for sharing your vision of the future with us.